This episode is brought to you with support from the podcast 70 Million. Thanks for listening to Force of Law. If you haven't listened to our first three episodes, please check them out. This one will make more sense if you hear those first. And a quick warning before you listen. This episode includes sound from violent incidents. Hey, Adele Police Department. Adele Police Department, you're not under arrest. You're not in trouble. On June 19th, 2019, Sacramento police went to the home of a man named Adele Ramos to help a woman who said she'd experienced domestic violence. They were there to protect her while she gathered some belongings. Police do this kind of thing all the time. Officers found the door to the house barricaded, so they walked toward a garage in the backyard. That's what you're hearing in this body cam footage. It shows the officer knocking on the garage door with his gun drawn. What it doesn't show, what you're about to hear, is that the man inside the house had his gun ready too. Adele, police department. If you're in here, let me know. You're not in trouble, dude. One down, code three fire movement. Officer down, officer down, code three fire. High power rifle. The shots from inside the house hit Officer Tara O'Sullivan, a 26 year old who had graduated from the police academy six months earlier. She fell in the backyard. Yeah, he's still shooting, he's stalking. Changing clips, changing clips, he's changing clips. In the midst of this gunfire, the officers had to rescue O'Sullivan without getting shot. They called for help from an armored vehicle. Multiple shots fired, multiple shots fired. 21, the shots are coming from the back door. More police arrived with the armored vehicle. The suspect kept shooting as they drove it into the backyard. One officer shot at him while the others loaded O'Sullivan into the vehicle. As they started to pull out, the vehicle stalled. So the officers carried O'Sullivan to safety. K-9 Sam 9, rescue is complete. Keep progressing out. Eastbound out of the alley. We need to lock this down and confirm there are no other outstanding victims. They rushed O'Sullivan to the hospital. Ramos continued firing from inside his house for four hours, police say. Eventually, he surrendered. In the middle of the night, Sacramento's deputy police chief Dave Paletta addressed the media. I'm sad to share with you tonight that we lost one of our own. Officer Tara Christina O'Sullivan died at the hospital. Police booked Adele Ramos for her murder. He has not yet entered a plea. In 2019, O'Sullivan was the 56th officer nationwide to die in the line of duty. Among officer deaths in California, hers was similar to Natalie Corona's in January, who was shot while responding to a car accident in the college town of Davis. O'Sullivan and Corona had graduated from the same police academy, just one class apart. Both women were in their 20s, just getting started in their careers. Both were killed by violent men with guns while doing the most routine kind of police work, helping people in need. 
These occupational hazards have loomed over the California Capitol as lawmakers have debated a bill to limit when officers can shoot. Law enforcement first argued against the bill, saying it would put officers' lives at even greater risk. If they felt they had to hesitate before firing their weapons, the police argued, more cops would die. No politician wants to be responsible for that. The only way the legislature would pass the bill to set a tougher standard for police to use deadly force was if police felt certain it wouldn't put them in greater danger. I'm Laurel Rosenhall, and this is Force of Law, a podcast about police shootings and California's attempt to do something about them. This episode is about the dangers police face on the job. You may remember from earlier episodes that the first hearing on the deadly force bill included raw reminders of how dangerous police work can be. From a sheriff's deputy who survived a deadly shootout. Within 10 seconds of arriving at the store, the subject began shooting at us. And from relatives of a deputy who didn't make it. I'm a survivor spouse of a murdered deputy, and I'm in total opposition of this. But after law enforcement lobbyists and civil rights advocates reached a compromise on Assembly Bill 392, police stopped making that argument. The Assembly passed the compromise version by a landslide at the end of May 2019. And when the Senate Public Safety Committee heard it in June, not a single opponent showed up to speak. All right. Are there any witnesses in opposition? Seeing none, let's bring it back to the dais. Uh, A few weeks later, the bill sailed off the Senate floor, heading for the desk of Governor Gavin Newsom, who said he intends to sign it. As the Senate voted, Cephas and Beatrice Johnson watched from the gallery above. They held on to a photo of their nephew, Oscar Grant, who transit police in Oakland killed in 2009. Cephas called the bill's passage a milestone in a decade-long movement for more police accountability. The power of the police to use deadly force is one of the most significant responsibilities given to any public official. That responsibility must be guided by legislation in safeguarding human life as well as human right. I wanted to understand why law enforcement was no longer concerned that a tougher standard for justifying force would put officers' safety at risk. The simple answer is that the bill allows them to shoot when necessary to defend human life. And it doesn't specifically define what necessary means. The more complicated answer is that the bill says that in judging whether deadly force was necessary, authorities must use the perspective of a reasonable officer. This part of the bill uses concepts from Graham versus Connor, that landmark Supreme Court case that police view as a critical legal protection. That's why I was able to support it. This is Tom Lackey, a Republican assemblyman and longtime highway patrol officer. He voted against the original version of AB 392 when it was in committee, but he voted for the compromise on the assembly floor. Now he's convinced that it will not put officers in danger. The word necessary, without the word reasonable to temper it, 
is clearly unfair and unjust and would cause officers to think instead of react. And that would mean several officers would not survive. Officers can still fire their weapons when they perceive a deadly threat. They only have to prove that a reasonable officer would think it was necessary. That's led some in law enforcement to say the bill really doesn't make much of a change. The reason why it didn't change anything is because the language, in essence, mirrors the Supreme Court case of Graham versus Connor. Ed Obayashi is a lawyer, a use of force expert, and a deputy sheriff in Plumas County. He recalled how Sacramento police shot and killed an unarmed man in 2018. Stephon Clark was the catalyst for this bill. If we had a Stephon Clark incident and AB 392 was law today, no prosecutor would bring charges against the officers. Clark was holding a cell phone, but the district attorney said evidence showed that the officers who shot him believed he was holding a gun. Their action was lawful under the reasonable standard established by the United States Supreme Court. Civil rights advocates who support AB 392 say it may not change every district attorney's decision whether to prosecute. But they dispute this claim that the bill is the same as the decision in Graham. Graham sets the standard for when police can use deadly forces whenever a, a, an officer would think it was reasonable to do so. Peter Babring is an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, a key architect of the bill. But there's a world of difference between asking whether a reasonable officer would think the use of deadly force was reasonable, which is a vague standard, and whether a reasonable officer would think that the use of deadly force was necessary to defend against an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. And that difference is what AB 392 does. Babring is confident that the bill will make a significant change in the law and will limit when police can legally shoot. But he's concerned that another piece of legislation moving through the Capitol may undermine it. Remember how police advanced their own bill to reduce police shootings with more training and stricter department policies? They positioned it as a companion to the deadly force bill. But Biebring is lobbying against it. Both bills direct officers to de-escalate uh, or use other tactics besides deadly force when it's feasible to do so. But the definition um, of feasible in this bill is so strict by requiring no increase in uh, risk to officers, even a reasonable increase, that it makes that requirement in this bill very weak and would undermine the requirement in AB 392. Legislators on the Assembly Public Safety Committee didn't seem very sympathetic to his argument. Democratic Assemblywoman Rebecca Bauer Cahan invoked Officer O'Sullivan's death as she urged her colleagues to vote for the police-backed bill, SB 230. I think that it's important that we remember the lives that are taken on the law enforcement side as well. And I think the deal that was struck on SB 230 and AB 392 honored the lives lost on both sides. To people who work in law enforcement, the threat of death is very real. I have eight people that I work with who have lost their lives uh, while on duty. Tom Lackey again, the assemblyman who spent 28 years as a highway patrolman. When I made an approach on a car uh, to take an enforcement action, was shot right in the face and killed immediately. Uh, another one had stopped to render aid to a, 
a motorist who had been broken down on the freeway and while waiting for a tow truck was run over. Um, I have another dear friend who uh, was a motorcycle officer and a truck immediately stopped with no warning uh, right in front of him and uh, he lost his life. After he said this, Lackey realized he'd left someone off his list, an officer who was his partner for many years. He'd committed suicide after killing a man in a gunfight, and Lackey said his friend could never come to terms with taking a life. That would make nine uh, because of the way he, he didn't lose his life on duty, but it was duty-related, so actually it's nine. So there's all kinds of uh, training rooms here. You know they're similar to training this way. Yeah, let's see if she's here. Come on in. This is Police Chief John Carley showing me around a law enforcement training facility in Fairfield, California. I was there to try some of the video exercises police officers use in their training. Carly walked me into this big darkened room with a huge screen on one wall and a bank of computers on the other. Officer Michelle Bellier strapped a belt around my waist and explained the tools that I could use. So what we have here is we have a taser simulator, firearm, and pepper spray. So you guys Police call this a force options simulator. The videos display different kinds of threats and officers practice deciding in a split second what kind of force to use. The imitation weapons interact with the screen so you can see where your bullets or your pepper spray land. And the officer controlling the video from the computer can make the scenario evolve in different ways, depending on what the officer doing the exercise says and does. So we'll run you guys through a handful today. Police often invite journalists to do these exercises as a way to build understanding of their profession. Law enforcement lobbyists even brought in a simulator to the state capitol in 2018 when they were arguing against the first bill to limit the use of deadly force. They set it up in the basement and they ran lawmakers and staffers through the drills. When I started working on this podcast, I thought it was important to give it a try. My hour-long exercise quickly began to feel like a ridiculous comparison to real police work. I've never had a day of training in how to de-escalate a violent situation or communicate with people in crisis or even shoot a gun. Before they turned on the videos, I tried to clarify when and how to shoot. So in pulling the trigger, you, based upon a trained officer, have to have the, this, the true belief there's an imminent danger. And it doesn't have to be a real danger. It's you and your actions in that moment. Because, again, it could be a cell phone. So but, but I don't want to, like, unnecessarily kill someone. No. So should I aim and, like, shoot them? Should I try to shoot them in the leg or something so that they'll I'll stop the threat but not um, kill someone? Shooting to injure, to, to basically stop, may be nothing more than a miss. It might also, because I'm trying to shoot for a small target, and that target might be moving or I might be moving, it might injure someone else. There's, there's such a small um, guarantee of any accuracy that no one would ever teach that. So you, you teach center mass. Officer Bellier started playing the videos. All right, so our first scenario, you are sent to a domestic disturbance. The video opened with a woman in a kitchen telling me her man's been drinking and hitting her and that he has a gun. 
Then the guy walks into the kitchen holding a bottle. Yeah. He starts apologizing and says nothing's going on. Uh, I'm going to have you have a seat on the couch over here, sir. That was the sound of me getting shot. While I was talking to the man holding the bottle, the woman pulled out a handgun and fired at me. I didn't see it coming, and I was not prepared to react. Domestic violence is very hostile, and this is where a lot of officers get killed. Tara O'Sullivan was one. Next up, a bar fight. That was me using my pepper spray. Have a seat, please. Keep your hands up and just have a seat. The action stopped and everyone in the scene was still alive. But I couldn't tell if I had handled it the right way. Did I pass, fail, what? Right there where she comes across and breaks a bottle across the head and neck, that would be an assault with a deadly weapon, 245 of the penal code. So should I have not used the pepper spray? Officer Bellier said that when she did this exercise, she shot the woman who smashed the bottle. Uh, but for me, it, her behavior was enough to justify it. Like he said, you know, bottle to the head is enough. On to the next scenario. So uh, here you are called to respond to a subject that is displaying signs of excited delirium. Uh, I'm going to need you to drop that knife right now. Drop it. Put it down. Drop it. Drop it. I'm going to need you to put it down right now. Sir, put the knife down right now. Put the knife down. It was the first time during this exercise that I fired my gun. So, I have no doubt that was justifiable. So, um, There's a man on the grass standing near a building, and he has a very large knife. It looks like a large kitchen knife, and he was waving it around. He was acting really crazy, and I gave several commands to put it down, and he wouldn't. He definitely has sort of a crazed look in his eyes, and um, he got on his knees. He got on his feet. He did a bunch, but he never let go of the weapon, and then he did eventually turn and come right at me with the knife raised up in his right hand, and I did shoot him in the chest. So question, how did that make you feel? Scared. When the hour was over, I'd gone through four scenarios. I fired my gun in just one of them. But the lesson from the others was clear. If I didn't use force fast enough, Someone would get hurt or killed. And it could be me. This is where the idea of the thin blue line comes from. It represents police as a line separating order from chaos, law-abiding citizens from criminals. And it illustrates why police work is so dangerous this constant demand for someone to stand between victims and violence. Across the United States, about 100 officers die in the line of duty each year, with roughly half killed in attacks and half in accidents. But studies show that the danger to police is down drastically from a couple generations ago. 
I saw really dramatic declines in uh, the deaths of police officers over time. Uh, overall, a 75% decline in deaths from the early 1970s to, uh, to 2016, which is the last year of the study. This is Michael White. I'm a professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. He studied on-duty deaths of police officers, looking at those caused by accidents, as well as criminal attacks. And uh, the felonious attacks actually have declined by a greater amount, by about 80 percent from 1970 to uh, 2016. One of the questions he wanted to answer was whether there's been more attacks on police since officers in Ferguson, Missouri, killed Michael Brown in 2014, pushing the Black Lives Matter movement into the mainstream. There was no evidence to suggest that felonious killings of police have increased since Uh, Since 2014, the evidence did not show that at all. There have been some spikes. In particular, July 2016 was a especially violent month. That was the month where 10 Dallas police officers were shot. I believe uh, uh, four or five of them died in the light of duty. And then two or three weeks after that, several officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, were also killed in an ambush attack. But but if you look at the longer term trend, as I said, um, uh, policing is a much safer profession now. Uh, than it was uh, 50 years ago. White noted a few reasons for the drop. Improvements in body armor and increased wearing of body armor. There have been improvements in training, improvements in uh, in policy, um, the development and use of less lethal weapons that give police more tools to manage encounters that are likely to turn violent. Another researcher who's examined killings of police and by police says the same factor creates the predominant threat in both situations. Civilian gun ownership. Franklin Zimring teaches law at the University of California, Berkeley, and directs the school's criminal justice research program. If I am a police officer on patrol, uh, the threats to my life that exist are almost completely, in terms of assaults, firearms. 97.5% of all the killings of police officers by civilians in the six years that we studied them were gun deaths. Officers know that anytime they show up at a call, even the ones that seem the most routine, they may face someone with a gun. We have them in 100 million households. We have them in millions of cars. They make police patrolling much more dangerous in this country than in other countries. And because they are dangerous for police, police are much more dangerous and much more apt to use life-threatening force against civilians. This is a quick break to tell you about another criminal justice podcast called 70 Million. It examines reforms cities and states are trying, like eliminating cash bail and overturning wrongful convictions. One episode focuses on a program in California that's trying to keep foster youth out of jail. And the podcast is open source, so it's great for teachers, organizers, and community media makers because it means you can use and share all the original resources on the 70 Million website for free. 70 Million is produced by Lantigua Williams and Company and funded by the MacArthur Foundation Safety and Justice Challenge. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
Every May, thousands of law enforcement officers gather at the state capitol to remember those who died in the line of duty. It's a huge event. Police vehicles from around the state line the streets outside the capitol. Police on horseback and motorcycles fill a road that's closed to other traffic. The state's most powerful politicians address officers from a stage. We're here today to enroll 10 fallen officers, eight from last year, two from the distant past, who, out of love for their communities and our state, laid down their lives for each and every one of us. As Governor Gavin Newsom spoke, California's Attorney General and the state's Chief Justice sat near him on the stage. About 20 lawmakers looked on from VIP seats. These fallen officers form an unbroken chain of Californians, forged by courage, tested by danger, defined by decency, who each made the ultimate sacrifice while in patrol cars, on bikes, on foot, and standing post. This ceremony's featured speaker was Randy Richardson, chief of police in the small Central Valley town of Newman. It's where Officer Ronel Singh was killed on Christmas Day 2018. He had pulled over a man who seemed to be driving drunk. The driver shot him and fled. He died a hero. Because Ron knew. Ron knew he was the protector between good and evil. That evil could only thrive when good men and women do nothing. At this point, Richardson shifted from somber eulogy to political attack, with a dig at the politicians from the state house facing the stage. And the policies that are coming from across the street are making it more difficult for us to do things. But yet I know, looking out of the sea of green and blue, that we will never stop. Because if we do, the eight families from 2018 in California, their deaths will be in vain. After the speeches, Governor Newsom lay a folded flag at the foot of a memorial statue. Then the family of each officer being remembered took a turn doing the same. They held roses and babies and wept. By June, people who had once opposed the bill had stopped testifying at the state capitol. But I still wanted to learn more about their stories and how they feel since the bill changed. I tracked down Mercedes Wallace, the widow of a sheriff's deputy. She'd spoken out against the bill a few months before. She invited her brother-in-law to join us, and we met at a cafe in Modesto, a city in California's Central Valley. Do you guys mind if I sit in? No, go ahead. Do you want something to drink? Do you want coffee um, or iced tea or anything? Yeah, or? a little iced tea sounds iced tea. nice. Right. Thank you. The cafe's owner loves law enforcement, and she's decorated the place to show her support. The walls are painted blue. There's a thin blue lined flag hanging over the fireplace. And beside it, a plaque memorializing Mercedes' husband, Stanislaus County Sheriff's Deputy Dennis Wallace. He loved being out in his community. He didn't look at who you were. 
He didn't look at what color you were. He didn't look at what, where you came from. He just stopped and smiled and helped you if you needed help. Dennis was killed on a Sunday morning in 2016. As Mercedes recalled that day, she fiddled with the bracelets on her arm. Our typical Sundays was I'd get up and because he patrolled in the town we live in, it was easy. He'd call me and if I was up, I'd make him breakfast or we'd go to my mom's house and I would call him and say, hey, breakfast is ready, come on by. So that morning I was getting up and just doodling around the house knowing that he was going to come back because he did in the morning. I, he said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go, I'll be back. And he left to work. Dennis loved uh, looking for stolen vehicles. This is Dennis's brother, David Wallace. That was something he was very good at it. And he knew where his duck ponds were. And, and when I say that is he knew where there was likelihood of cars being dumped, that, you know, this is where car thieves go to strip them. And... Fox Grove fishing access was a common place for cars to be dumped. Dennis's brother is a retired Modesto police officer. So he went down to Fox Grove, slow Sunday morning, and sure enough, he comes across this suspicious van at the back of the parking lot. He ran the plate. There was a delay in information coming back. He made contact with the responsible um, in the course of that, they finally came back that this vehicle has been reported stolen and they never were able to raise him back on the radio. Another deputy arrived at the scene and found Dennis's body. He had been shot in the head. And about nine o'clock, I heard the knock on the door and the sheriff and another uniform were there. When I saw him at the door, I knew something. So all I could ask him is, is he okay? Is he okay? And the only thing out of his mouth was, are you alone in the house? That's all he said. And then just told me, just straight out, just told me. And so it's just, it's just been hell since. Prosecutors charged David Machado with Dennis's murder. He pleaded not guilty. There have been lots of delays in the case, and it's still working its way through court. Meanwhile, Mercedes and her brother-in-law have been attending funerals for other officers and putting pressure on politicians not to pass a law that they believe could place police at greater risk. That's what brought them to Sacramento in April to oppose AB 392. That bill was horrendous. It was going to cause hesitation and hesitation in thought causes hesitation in action, which causes officers' deaths. I remember that hearing was packed with hundreds of people describing violence by police. I asked the Wallaces what it felt like to sit through that testimony. Hurtful. The one that stuck in me is somebody in the crowd when I said that I lost my husband in the line of duty. He said that was karma. How dare you? How dare you? You know what? If somebody gets shot, it's because you put yourself in that position. I thought I was going to throw up. I was so upset. Most of the Bill's supporters who upset her were black and brown. Their assumptions bother her brother-in-law, David, who is white. Uh, what I take offense to is the racial undertones 
that really truthfully drive this measure. Okay? I didn't get in law enforcement so that I could enforce laws against other races, you know? I, I got into this job because I believed in something greater than myself. I'm not a bigot, you know. I, I hate bullies. David said the compromised version of the bill gives police enough protection because it requires analyzing a use of force from the perspective of a reasonable officer. He's not worried anymore that it will endanger police, though he fears politicians may try to tweak the law in the future. Mercedes, on the other hand, hasn't changed her perspective on AB 392. Yeah, it's putting our officers in danger. I already lost my brother. You know, I have 12 friends that are on our local wall. I've been to 74 line-of-duty death funerals. Tomorrow, I will have gone to my 75th when I go to Officer O'Sullivan's funeral. On a sunny morning in late June, thousands of people converged at a big suburban church north of Sacramento to pay their respects to Officer O'Sullivan. There were rows and rows of officers in dress blue uniforms, shiny shoes and crisp caps, officers on horseback and motorcycles. Police cars from near and far filled a parking lot that seemed to stretch on for acres. Some officers had traveled from as far away as Chicago and New York. It's just what we do. It's our... We, we're here to support every single uh, officer and their family because we're all one big family. Stay together, represent each other, show support. It doesn't matter what police department you're from, we're all one. On behalf of the Sacramento Police Department and the city of Sacramento, thank you all for being here. This is Daniel Hahn. Sacramento's police chief. Last Wednesday, evil showed its face in our city, as it sometimes does. As usual, when this happens, someone calls the Sacramento Police Department to help them. On this day, Tara and her partners responded. They responded to help somebody in need, regardless of the circumstances. On this day, we lost an amazing person incredible officer, and a treasure in our city. Tara's colleagues described her as brave, assertive, and loyal. She'd known since she was a teenager that she wanted to be a police officer. Tara had a distinct and ever-so-memorable habit. She tended to let out the loudest, high-pitched hiccups you could ever hear. Sergeant Brett Kenayuki was Tara's supervisor at the police academy. He said she was so strong that she broke the department record by holding a plank keeping her body above the floor on her elbows and toes for more than 26 minutes. And I can remember when she was breaking the record. She had another poor male recruit, which I will not name, but he was only able to hang with her for about 22 minutes. Tara's godfather, Gary Rausch, talked about how much she loved dogs and said he and his husband had cherished watching her grow up. I must say farewell to you for now, my sweet girl. Oh, how you would have loved all this pomp, all of the outpouring of love and support. Thank you for making us your godfathers and showing us a love 
that was so wonderfully uncommon. I love you always, and you'll forever be a part of our lives. Tara Strong. Control. The department played the final dispatch about Tara at the funeral. Charles 28, Officer O'Sullivan. Two Charles 28, Officer O'Sullivan isn't answering. Sacramento Police Officer Tara O'Sullivan, badge 349. We honor your sacrifice and thank you for your service to the citizens of Sacramento. We are forever grateful. Officer Tara O'Sullivan is end of watch, June 19th, 2019. Your watch is ended. We'll take it from here. You will never be forgotten. Like other law enforcement memorials I've attended, this funeral was an immense patriotic ritual. Red, white, and blue floral bouquets filled the church. American flags adorned the lobby. Bunting decorated the stairway outside. And a huge stars and stripes hung from the cross ladders of two fire trucks at the entrance to the church parking lot. When the service ended, officers fired a 21-gun salute, and police helicopters flew over the grounds in a V formation. All the pageantry reminds you that the person who died was part of something much larger. Not just the police department or even the law enforcement profession, but part of the government, that messy, powerful structure that makes our laws and enforces them. Governor Gavin Newsom was at the funeral, as were several legislators. The service resonated with a sense of unity between Democrats and Republicans, between civilians and police. It felt like a world apart from the state capitol, where divisions are easy to see. Politics has a way of doing that, of focusing our attention on the conflicts. We see a gulf between the parties, or the branches of government, or the policymakers who want to limit deadly force, and the police groups lobbying to protect themselves. Here, though, on this day, the distance between them didn't seem that great. You're listening to Force of Law, a production of Cal Matters and Studio To Be. I'm your host, Laurel Rosenhall. Brian Howey produced this episode and helped me report it. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Ray Ortega engineered this episode. Robbie Short is our researcher. David Lesher of Cal Matters and Joaquin Alvarado and Kristen Belden of Studio To Be are the executive producers. Broadcastify supplied the sound we use from police radios. You heard original music by Eli Chambers and additional music by Lee Rosevere and Remember the Future. Thank you to Chloe Behrens and Zach Moreno from Squadcast.